I document that we have sizable differences in slave mortality. And this is depending on the crop produced. And this is a higher mortality in places where there were more sugarcane intensive. Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifonter. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Marie Bejelman is a third-year PhD candidate in economics at the University of Barcelona. Her research interests lie at the intersection of health economics, political economy, and economic history. In her thesis, she explores how traumatic events affect family dynamics and health outcomes. In the work we discuss today, she investigates the intergenerational impact of labor coercion and explores the specific role of families as transmission channels of persistence. A warning before we start. This episode includes references to slavery and physical violence. In case these topics are extra sensitive to you, this is a heads up. Hi, Marie. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Hi, Clementine. Thank you for inviting me and giving the opportunity to present this work, which is in progress. So super happy to share this progress with you today. I really wanted to talk about this project because you're going to talk about preliminary results today, but I think there's a much broader research project behind and that deserves attention and I'm really excited about it. So the overall idea is that you are going to study the long-term impact of labor cohesion in the context of former French colonies in the Caribbeans. And it might be a good moment to acknowledge that we're both French white women discussing these issues together today. And I first wanted to ask you, how did you first start thinking about this project and what was your perspective approaching these questions as an economic historian? originally interested in how traumas lived by ancestors affect family generations afterwards. And so I started to read about this topic and, you know, I got interested in many different possible traumas, if I may say, and one of them was slavery. I built this whole project based on this work by people from the French West Indies that wanted to understand better the role of slavery and how it shaped the societies, how they can build on this. So this is really a work that has built on efforts by people from the French West Indies and by, obviously, scholars. So first wanted to maybe talk about what we know and what we don't know about the long-term impact of these slave societies or labor coercions from the literature and where do you think your contribution is the most novel and important. A word of context for labor coercion. So labor coercion, so from slavery to indentured work, it was a pillar, central pillar of European powers, colonial expansion in the new world. And so these powers, they set up extractive institutions in many colonies in the Caribbean, in South America, with the sole or main objective to extract wealth and bring it back to the mainland. And so not only was slavery a pillar, of colonial powers expansion, but it also, you know, mechanically became also a founding institution for many societies. And economists have taken an interest in understanding the historical roots of development, and they've also taken an interest in understanding how 
past labor coercion could affect societies in the long run. And so economists such as Nunn, Dylan Olkin, Lowe's and Montero, they have looked at this issue empirically. And they've shown that past labor coercion affects today's societies on a wide array of outcomes. So, you know, from economic development, institutions, norms, health, etc. And these studies, they document this persistent impact of labor coercion at the aggregate level. So to be very simple about it, they're comparing past local characteristics with present local characteristics. So these local areas, they can be countries, they can be counties, different level. But so we know that persistence matters, but we don't know really how we get to these aggregate effects. And in particular, we know very little about the role that families play as a transmission channel of persistence within these aggregate effects. So that's one thing, the relative role of a family, this transmission channel, as opposed to local infrastructure, institution. And one thing that we know a bit I mean, we know little about is also relates to the dynamics of persistence. So should we expect past labor coercion to have its stronger effect in the short term and then fade away over time? Or do we have an effect that kicks in for the third, fourth generation? Is it stronger for some families in some areas than others? And so understanding more about families and dynamics, it also helps understanding the mechanisms that drive the persistent impact of labor coercion. And we need to know more about this if we want to tackle this issue and address it. So I first wanted to ask you to tell us about the specificity of the setting, both geographic setting and historical setting that you study and what aspects that are most important we should know about. So I study the slave institution as implemented by the French in the Caribbean and more specifically in two islands, so Guadeloupe and Martinique. These two islands, they were colonized in the mid-17th century and they're typical example of extractive colonies in the sense that the colonists, they imported massively slaves from Africa in the 18th century and used the enslaved labor force to produce harvested goods for agriculture. From the 17th century to the 18th century, I mean, sugarcane gradually became the main crop produced. So in the 18th and 19th century, approximately between 50 and 60% of the enslaved labor force was attached to sugarcane production. This remained relatively stable over time. And 40% of the enslaved labor force between 30 and 40 was attached to secondary crop production. So that's coffee, cocoa, indigo, for instance. And they were also city slaves. But so we have this economy, which is an agricultural economy, mainly revolving around sugar, but also some secondary crop. In this context, also, one thing that's important here to understand this whole slave economy is the role, is how it's structured. So the way that it's structured is that, I mean, the, the unit of interest here is the plantation. It's called the plantation. So from the harvest, if I may say, to the production of the exportable good, everything is done on the plantation. There is very little connection between the different plantations. They're all turned towards exporting, towards mainland France. And they're autonomous. You know, slave owners, they do, they do what they want. Every aspect of the enslaved individual's life, from living conditions to working conditions, they're decided by slave owners. So some of them, they have their prison. 
their hospitals. They punish as they please, they do as they please, and there is very little intervention from the local administration, local police force. So that's the setting, more or less, in which we are. So your starting point is to observe that slaves' living and working condition were worse on sugar plantations compared to other industries of agriculture. And so what kind of historical evidence do we have to support this hypothesis? Historians that have worked on this topic have identified several factors that contributed to make enslaved individuals' conditions different according to the crop produce. So I said that, you know, the slave owners were gods, so they did what they wanted. So obviously their own individual effect was probably very important to explain how slaves were living. But beyond this, the type of crop produced seemed to matter. So first of all, because of structural differences in how sugarcane was produced compared to how coffee was produced. So this, we have a lot of evidence on how sugarcane was produced and how coffee was produced. And this actually remained very, very, very similar throughout the centuries. You know, it was basically the same techniques. So this production, for sugarcane plantations, they were typically bigger because there was a need for a large labor force and several complex manufacturing steps for sugarcane production. Work on sugarcane plantations tended to be more physically demanding. You know, sugar canes, they're like, it's heavy, it's very hard to harvest. Compared to harvesting coffee, for instance, it's much more physically demanding. So this first difference. And also regarding these, the manufacturing of the sugar process itself, it involved actually several dangerous steps. And we have testimonies of the time that historians have analyzed that recall many accidents occurring during the production process. There is one example of these accidents that's, that's displayed in the movie 12 Years a Slave, which is actually a book originally. The accident occurs when a slave is inserting a sugar cane into a rolling drum in order to crush it. So it's impossible to crush a sugar cane by hand. You need to use, so what was usually done is using rotating mill. It was called the roulez process. And this process was very dangerous because the cane had to be inserted very close to the drums. So the limbs, the arms were really close to the crushing drums. And accidents were numerous. And historians, they use different testimonies of the time. They use plantations records and they see this a lot. So this is one thing, more dangerous, more physically demanding. Also, one thing that we can think about, another reason why life was likely to be harder, is because sugarcane plantations were bigger. Historians found evidence that actually slave owners, well, they were afraid of any type of group action. So if you have 200 slaves and five white slave owners, if I can simplify things, in case of a slave revolt, slave owners would be completely overwhelmed. This is maybe a threat that was less intense in smaller plantations. So there are reasons to believe also that the use of violence to nip any attempt to group action in the bud was maybe more frequent on sugarcane plantations. So these are structural reasons that made historians you know, argue that life on sugarcane plantation was likely to be different. And another thing that was mentioned by historians is that the sugarcane market experienced a plausibly exogenous shock some 40 years prior to the abolition of slavery that changed drastically the economic incentives of, of sugarcane owners, producers. And this shock is the introduction of beet sugar production in France in 1815. And so beet sugar production 
is actually much more efficient than sugarcane production. You have uh, much less need for labor force. You have you don't ha- you barely have any losses, and it can be produced in the mainland, so locally. But because the colonists had quite a strong lobby in the government, they were able to tame that competition to, you know, make sure that some tariffs were introduced so that it was a competition, but it was mild at the beginning. But nevertheless, sugarcane prices started to decrease. So from, for instance, 1830 to 1848, so 20 years prior to the abolition of slavery, prices, sugarcane prices decreased by 30%. And how did sugarcane producers react? When we look at aggregate statistics, we see that they increased production. But this increase in production, they could only do it with a decreasing number of slaves because the ban on slave trade had been introduced in 1831 and very strongly enforced. So, you know, when we look just at aggregate statistics and do a back-of-the-envelope calculation, we see in this two decades prior to the abolition of slavery, an increase in the workload of slaves attached to sugarcane plantations, but not for those attached to coffee plantations. And we are already in a situation of appalling living and working conditions, and we have a big increase in the workload. So this likely affected even more the labor coercion intensity in uh, sugarcane plantations. So a key feature of your research agenda is that you undertake a massive data collection effort. I wanted to ask you to tell us about this and like what are the different sources that you are putting together to look at these long-term effects of labor cohesion? It's quite a massive digitization effort of archival records and administrative records, actually. So I'm digitizing census data, several registries, and also other data sources, but so all these data is handwritten, which makes the data collection quite complex, but which also makes it very detailed and allows to gather information on slaves and their descendants across generations. So I exploit different data sources. The first one that I exploit are civil registries of the enslaved population. So Civil registries, these are birth, death, and marriage registries. It became mandatory for slave owners to declare their slaves' death, birth, and marriages to the counties from 1834 to 1848. So a decade and a half, 15 years prior to the abolition of slavery. The idea behind this reglementation was that first, it was to be able to better estimate how many slaves slave owners had because they had to pay taxes according to the number of slaves owned. And... The second objective of the central government in implementing this regulation was to also symbolically assert more control over the colonies' affair, to remove some of the power that colonists actually had. So I gathered this data and I constructed a novel database, exhaustive database, on slave mortality 
at the county level between 1834 and 1848. So this is covering approximately 50 counties, over the 60 in total, because some of these registries were lost. So that's the first data source that I exploit. And I combine this data with information on, on county-level land use and population and, and sugarcane prices in order to study how slave mortality, slaves' living and working condition differed according to the crop production. So that's my first big data collection process. The second data that I use is individual level data on the entire newly freed population in 1848. So not entirely, not entire, it covers 80% of the former slaves, of the newly freed population. 80%, again, because some of these registries were lost. So this is census data. The idea of the central government was to keep track, to get the information on all these new citizens, and most of all, to give them a surname, give them a civic identity. And there is a specificity in surname giving here, is that there was official guidelines that prohibited the use of white colonists' surnames. As a result, among all the surnames given to the, to the formerly enslaved population, 90% of these surnames, they were given to less than five individuals in 1848. And the, the majority of cases, these five individuals, they're from the same family. So this means that the surname here is, can be used as a quasi-perfect identifier of an individual slave ancestry. So that's here, that's my main methodological strategy here to be able to follow and formerly enslaved families over time. And the final data source that I use are several registries covering the demographic events of slave descendants from 1848 to the beginning of the 20th century. And this is a huge data collection effort. So right now I'm digitizing subsamples of this. But the idea here is to be able to track demographic events, to be able to study child mortality, intermarriages, mobility, many things. This is where I am really right now. So digitizing these data on descendants and doing this much, this family linkage using surnames. La minute technique. So in this podcast, researchers take one minute to explain one technical aspect of their work. And I wanted to maybe ask you to tell us more about the handwritten text recognition model and the application and challenges that you could have in economic history with such models. I have nearly maybe half a million pages of handwritten material. So I obviously had to consider handwritten text recognition. So What does that mean? Handwritten text recognition models are part of a broader category of model, which are optical character recognition. And the idea here is to use a model that has been trained to recognize in an image a character, a word, and make it transform it into a readable content. So printed text. Models for printed text recognition, they work quite well. You know, because the image, how a character looks like, it's quite standardized. So this means that there is a lot of, of data set that, and models that have been trained on for printed text that work quite well. But for handwritten data, this is very different because handwriting differs a lot between individuals. So basically, if you want to do handwritten text recognition, you always need to do some heavy manual training of models. And this manual training, you know, it's based on, on two types of model. So 
first you have uh, computer vision models in order to recognize, okay, so this image represents an A or represents a B or whatever. But, you know, sometimes these, these computer vision models, they don't recognize all the characters. So if you had only to use computer vision models, then your output sometimes would not mean anything. So this is usually coupled with a language recognition model that tries to make sense of it and to guess the word. In order to have something that works very well, and in particular in my case, that works well on surnames, this requires a lot of manual training. And that's the thing that a lot of economic historians actually quite struggle with. There's been a lot of advances on optical character recognition, but for handwritten text recognition, it's still quite a lot of effort, but it's getting easier, I guess. <laughs> the first empirical fact that you were able to establish is that there are indeed differences in labor cohesion intensity depending on the crop produced. So could you tell us more about that? I document that we have sizable differences in slave mortality. And this is depending on the crop produced. And this is a higher mortality in places where there were more sugarcane intensive. This appears to be linked to the exogenous shock on sugarcane prices. This follow, we see that slave mortality in sugarcane intensive areas follows price fluctuation. So based on this evidence, I argue that these differences in mortality, they reflect differences in labor coercion intensity which I want to exploit to look at its intergenerational impact. There could be a problem here, for instance, if the higher mortality of slave does not stem from how slaves are exploited, but stems, for instance, from initial differences in slaves' characteristics. So things that have nothing to do with how they're treated. This could be the case if, for instance, enslaved individuals attached to certain plantation were systematically negatively selected regarding health. So here I rely on historical studies that tend to show that, you know, there is no clear-cut differences in terms of enslaved population composition according to the type of crop produced. And if anything, because sugarcane producers were more wealthy, they could afford to buy the supposedly stronger slaves. So it would go the other way around. I argue that these results do reflect differences in how slaves are exploited, not initial differences. And I want to build on this for the next part. One important preliminary result you have is that this increase in mortality arises in both non-working and working age group. How do you interpret this and why is it important? Increase in slave mortality. I investigate different factors that could be driving this. So it cannot be an increase in and slave population, because we know that this is not happening because of the ban on slave trade. People are dying more. If it's children dying more or elderly people dying more that are not working, this could, for instance, reflect differences in living condition, in nutrition, in, in, in health. You know, maybe there's some health event that occurs that affected the, the weakest members, let's say, of the enslaved population. If it's working age group mortality, on the other hand, they're supposed to be stronger. I mean, childhood mortality was very high. So, you know, it's a big indicator here. This reflects also that something might be going on in the workplace. It's not just about nutrition. It's not just maybe about health or some disease. It's also maybe about like the overall working and living condition. And because we see both, 
we cannot see, oh, it's an increase in slave mortality, but it's just children dying, or very young children dying, or very old people dying. You know, the, the overall enslaved populations, they're not dying more. That, that's not what we see. We see that many people, everyone is dying more, basically. So for me, this I interpret this as an overall worsening of both living and working conditions. So basically how they're treated. You do talk about how it first impacts the next generation. So what is your first result in terms of, of child mortality, typically? So my first result in terms of child mortality is that children that are born out of parents that were enslaved in a more sugarcane-intensive areas, they tend to have a lower survival rate. They have a higher probability to die within the first months of life. And this cannot completely be explained by the fact that they live in areas where, you know, living conditions are just worse. This has something to do with where the parents come from, where the parents were enslaved, not just where they were born, but where the parents were enslaved. So you have obviously a much broader project with this question and, and this data. So I just wanted to ask you to maybe Tell us a bit of a teaser of what are you going to be looking at for other generations and what are the specific outcomes you're interested in? I'm going to be looking at expanding the data collection in the short and medium term, also very long term. And the, the outcomes that I'm going to be studying are, well, child mortality. I'm going to be studying intermarriages to understand if family dynamics differ according to you know the experience of the ancestor do we see for instance that uh, families that come from more sugarcane intensive areas they tend to marry with each other or they tend to this would give us also some some key information on on future generation social mobility in particular because all the assets everything was owned at the time of abolition by by the whites by the non-slave so if you know, marriages occur with whites, with non-former slaves. This is a key determinant for next generation's future social mobility. So I want to look at that. I will look at geographic mobility. I will look at fertility and also criminality. So criminal behavior. And all of this between 1848 and 1905. And I'm also going to be looking at much longer term outcomes. But I want to focus on what's going on in short and middle term after abolition in order to document as much mechanisms as I can to know really what's going on between these two points. So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you to share a recommendation with us of a book, a movie or anything you would like to talk about. I have a recommendation. It's a documentary which is called Les Rivières in French. So The Rivers. And it's a documentary by Mai Hua. She's French of Vietnamese origin. And she, she made this documentary on her own family. And it's about intergenerational link. So you have three generations, now even four actually, in that same documentary. It's about intergenerational link and transmission and what you carry from your ancestors' experiences, trauma. And, you know, this documentary is it really pushed me to look more closely at what happens within the family unit it really shows displays the importance of family transmission how family history is key and how you deal with it actually thank you so much for sharing this with us today and thank you marie for this conversation thank you this was inequality talks 
a podcast recorded by Clémentine Van Eventer in Toronto. I want to thank Aisha Philippe for editing this episode. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.